in a blink of an eye. Life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies. Beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down. And the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 31, Stay Alert. Hey, everyone. It's so good to be together. It's hard to believe we are nearing the end of season one. We have traveled so far together. Thank you for journeying with me. I hope you are gaining insight and feeling more empowered, too, about what you might do if you were faced with a catastrophic event in your life. I am finding new insights for myself every week I write and share the story with you. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? We are always learning, and our capacity for deeper understanding is endless. I love that. I hope you have heard our exciting news that we will be offering a few bonus episodes during the break between seasons one and two. These bonus episodes will include some of the interviews with the heroes behind the scenes of the Blink of an Eye story, doctors and friends, and other major players in Archer's story. You will recognize them from earlier episodes when I introduced you to them. And you'll have a chance to get to know them a little bit better and hear more from their perspective while we take a break to produce episodes for season two. Are you ready for this episode? I want to share with you the experience of staying alert, bedside to someone in the intensive care unit. It's possible this episode might get you riled up, especially if you have had a family member in the ICU. In the story, you will also hear again from Dr. Raymond Tolucci, the Chief of Trauma at Atlanticare. Shout out to Dr. Tolucci for his willingness and desire to talk, and a shout out to him and his team for everything they did for us five years ago. In this episode, I wonder aloud about things that go wrong in hospitals, and I wonder about the role of the family, bedside, and family medical staff partnerships as part of hospital transformation. I will cover this as it relates to trauma healing in the accompanying Trauma Healing Learnings episode, which you can listen to right here in the Blink of an Eye podcast feed. Okay, so sit back, settle your spirit, whether you are walking, folding laundry, on a drive, lying on the sofa, here we go. Life can change in the blink of an eye. August 12th, day eight. 
The handwritten notes in the margin of my Walgreens notebook, which I kept on the counter of Archer's hospital room for communication with Billy, read, Archer needs maximum rest. A look back to the notes I typed in my phone, which I titled Personal Notes, said much more. I want to go back a moment to the day before, when I went home to sleep a few hours. I had only been in bed about three hours when Billy called me in the early morning to tell me he thought Archer needed rest and to cancel any visitors. He was agitated and concerned. Archer still had three chest tubes jammed in his side, and they were talking about a tracheotomy. I could hear how unsettled he was and the anger in his voice. He also told me they came by to say there would be more assessments this morning. He knew I'd be upset if I wasn't there. We were both a bundle of nerves on end. I drove back up to Atlantic City. But before I left the house, the look-back text messages show that Billy texted me and the kids, quote, Doctor's orders, no visitors today. While I sent out to family and friends, quote, Please pray for Archer's diaphragm muscle, that it will be strong enough to allow him to breathe on his own, so he is not on a ventilator the rest of his life. And please pray for Billy and me that we make good decisions. The response was always amazing to me. Like I would send a text to a few text lists and it was like this expression, put it out to the universe. The universe always responds. Well, Actually, as I see it, it's not really the universe responding. It's the universe responding to God and carrying God's love. So I always felt it in the response texts. I really did. And it was as if they were coming from the divine, simple as they were. My last text request was... Please pray for Billy and me that we make good decisions. And I received back. I know you will. We love you and are praying for Archer. That was from Betty Payne McGee, my father's sister in her 80s, now deceased. God love her. My college roommate, Ann Hammond, wrote, Oh, God. Please help my friend Louise. Kathy Oaken, my business friend, said, Louise, I just want to give you the biggest hug. Please know we are all praying for you, Bill, and go Archer. Susan Wiley, a business colleague, sent, You remain in our thoughts and prayers, dear Louise. You and Billy will make all the right decisions for Archer. Trust yourself and in God for guidance. Call anytime if it will help. These messengers 
were becoming part of my daily lifeline. I don't know if they know how dear and valuable their texts were to me. If you ever have a friend in distress, know that it is so comforting to hear words of encouragement that we will do the right thing. As I pulled into the hospital parking lot, there was this text. Sending a big hug, Louise. James and Jack are about to leave to visit Archer, expecting to be there around 3 p.m. Would you rather they wait a couple of days? It was from Philippa Shields. Remember Philippa, whom you already met in episode 21, the mom of one of Archer's high school best friends? I texted her back. No visitors today. She immediately responded. Okay. Hugs. Prayers. Love. I felt the tension in my arms subside as I got out of the car. I was grateful she checked in about the planned visit. So I didn't forget or overlook telling her about no visitors today. And I was deeply appreciative of her grace. She accepted what I sent, curt as it was, <laughs> and didn't ask questions and sent us love and prayers. You know, I think I knew I didn't have to explain since she had been to the trauma ICU and would know. It was like those who came to visit, I don't know, but they were like in the family circle. You know what I mean? Such an intimacy, the effort and all extended to us to come see Archer and be with us all. And that she sent love and prayers. Such grace. That was all I wanted from anyone, really. Love and prayers. Well, short of a miracle. I think that love and prayers might be all that most people in similar situations or life crises want from friends. What do you think? They gave me momentary lifts. They really did. And they reminded me we were not alone. There was a text from one of our daughter Paula's college friends, Krista Babiak. Oh, now Krista Babiak Bennett. Mrs. Semft, I'm in tears. I can't imagine how you feel. I'm sending that to everyone I know for more prayers and so that his diaphragm can muscle the strength and can develop strong enough to make it through. I'm so sorry. I'm praying every day. There was one from Mike Detterman. You know, Mikey, one of Archer's good friends from grade school whom you've met. He wrote, Can't explain how much I care about each update, considering I read them over and over. I will spread the news and everyone will keep praying. 
sending love and prayers your way. As I walked over the bridge into the hospital, I felt pretty grounded by those messages. I felt like we were weaving together this big safety net for Archer, that prayers were going out all over. It was really comforting. I passed the security guards, signed in and got my badge, walked down the hall and hit the elevator button for the third floor. I glanced at my phone again to see an ongoing back and forth flurry of text messages between our big kids and Billy, planning the logistics of what would happen shortly, car exchanges, who was driving whom, what time, how we would swap places, and which two family members would be bedside to Archer while Billy and I went back to Cape May later in the day for our mediation. I smiled when I read the text Billy had sent to Dewey and Pete, instructing them on what we do bedside with Archer for when we were not there. Monitoring the monitors. Billy's text read, Look for heart to stay at like 60. Blood pressure close to 120 over 80. Parentheses 75 and paren. And oxygen in high 90s. Get nurse if any buzzers go off and watch what they do to make sure it's right. Ask questions. Ask Arch if he wants something if he wakes. He might not be able to spell anything because the pain medication is an opiate and he's messed up mentally on that. We want to get him to low levels of pain meds as soon as we can while managing his pain so he's comfortable, but also not high on drugs all the time. Things had really changed the last day and a half. They had put Archer on a bunch of narcotics. Billy and I had both been concerned about that, and I knew it was distressing for Billy when I asked him, upon my arrival, if they were still giving him those drugs. He said he had asked, and the medical staff said it was a low level, but he was concerned Archer was on them at all. And I was, too. I wondered how long Archer would be on them. And would they affect his ability to think clearly and communicate with us? I told Billy that when the staff came into Archer's room last night to give him his medication, I had questioned them about why Archer had to be on those drugs at all. Billy said he'd asked the same questions. We each told each other we both felt we never got any answers. One nurse looked at me like I didn't get it. It was true. I didn't. Dr. Radcliffe had told Paula, Pete, and me on that first day in the family meeting when I asked him about pain that Archer's spinal cord injury was not painful. I found that hard to believe, but that's what he said. I didn't understand it, really, but I kept thinking about it. Or be on any of the other drips except the fentanyl. Yeah, right, right, right. So so there's that. Um, so, so 
And he doesn't seem to be in a lot of pain, by the way, which is good. It, it's not a very painful surgery. Um, it's not a very painful surgery. So no. the pain he would be experiencing... Well, I mean, he broke society. a bone, and, and, you know, he's got, you know, ligament injuries. I mean, he's got, he has a reason to be in pain, but the surgery itself is not very painful. It seems like a lot of it's just from the breathing yeah. discomfort. Yeah. That, that's why we're just wondering when that could yeah. come out. So that, I, I just don't know about. Yeah. That's just not what I do, you know? I had to believe him. He was the surgeon. It gave me reassurance, even though I wished he'd known more than just about neck surgery. But he had said that Archer would not be in pain. It was just going to be a long process of mental adjustment and that we should get family counseling. I appreciated that about Dr. Radcliffe, that he saw a larger, more human picture. Family counseling. But I was still thinking it was just a matter of time that we'd have to adjust, and then we'd get Archer back to walking again. It was a new nurse who entered to do the spinal cord injury assessment this time. He was pleasant enough, but like the others, was brisk and went through what Archer could feel and not feel very quickly. He turned to me and said, nothing, meaning that Archer could feel nothing after he had poked a pencil-like object at his arms, hands, and feet. I just stared at him, and he repeated, no change. I was so annoyed by this little jerk to have the audacity to speak to me about my son in his presence in that way. So casual, so arrogant. I coolly said, wrong. He has a sensation in his left thumb. You missed it. Hmm, the nurse glibly murmured. He brushed Archer's thumb with the pencil and said, feel that? Archer just stared ahead. The nurse said, no change. I could feel the boiler in my belly beginning to get hot. You missed it, I said again. And as if I were the next person in line at Starbucks, he looked up and said, one phantom sensation? Such a jerk. No, I did not see it that way. I told him another assessor didn't either. I added that the other assessor had said it can take time. I appreciated that the other assessor from a couple days ago, whom I introduced you to, had said that. I mean, granted, he was not optimistic either about Archer but he was not so definitive, you know, close the door, making me feel like we were out in left field, believing there was some capacity. The difference in staff knowledge and bedside manner was remarkable to me. It really made a difference. And I didn't like this guy. 
And when I told him about the other nurse acknowledging that things are possible, you know what he said? Mmm, he said again. And he turned to leave and said, oh, well, I was dumbfounded and I was mad and I felt helpless. I actually felt like I was in a prison and I wanted to report him. I wanted to get him in trouble. No one was telling us the straight truth. I wondered if they knew what the heck they were looking for. And I wanted to know what exactly they were looking for in their 15-minute pencil appraisals. It seemed that everyone had a different view of Archer's injury. I was beginning to feel at odds with the medical staff because I felt like they were telling me different things that did not line up with each other. And they were important things, very important things, and very important for our understanding and our planning while we were there and what we were supposed to do next when we left. The last couple of days, I had been confused. But I could feel myself getting really angry. Like the kind that I just wasn't able to shake very easily. I wanted information. And I wanted good information. I was tired of little crumbs and slices here and there. I wanted to know the full picture. I wanted to understand my son's situation. Who is in charge of this place anyway? I wanted to talk with that person. That was confusing to me too, though, because they would refer to the acting chief, but there seemed to be more than one. Was there a chief? I wanted the chief. As I felt myself getting mad, I felt another sensation in my neck, like a tick pain. There wasn't in my head. Each time I noticed it, it was so fleeting. I really don't get headaches, though, which is why I even paid attention to it. I had this gut feeling. It was more an instinctual feeling in my body to pay close attention to the staff. I told myself, okay, listen very carefully to what each of the staff says and start asking more questions. I was still trying to calm myself from being so mad at that assessor's arrogance and his lack of caring and I was chastising myself for the vengeful thoughts I had to want to get him in trouble. Don't think like that, Louise. It'll just hold you back. Don't challenge them, I reminded myself. Ask questions. I knew this from all my mediation work. But I wanted to challenge them because I found it hard to ask questions when they just looked at me like I had no business doing so. And a couple, I mean, 
not many, but a couple were so freaking distracting to me by their casual punch your ticket, now you're on the clock demeanor. I was off balance. Take a breath, Louise. Okay. Oh, man. I don't think I've told you about how Archer has been trying to show the medical staff what he could do. Over the last two days, they'd been coming in and out of his room, assessing his spinal cord injury and his lung capability. And he was determined to show them he had capacity. I knew how badly he wanted to be freed of that oppressive machine. It was ironic because I was so grateful for that machine, but I also wanted him off. And I was haunted by what I knew of feeding tubes from my mediation elder care cases. I assumed respiratory machines were similar. The longer you are on, the harder it will be to get off. A pulmonologist next entered Archer's room for his assessment. (laughs) Yes, I was so glad Billy had called to alert me. I recognized him as one of the main two guys. I always looked forward to when they stopped by, but they were often not on the same page either. One doctor told me Archer would be off the ventilator in a matter of days, no more than a week. The other was more conservative, looking at two weeks. Every day for us mattered. And I knew Archer felt a huge pressure on his chest from the machines because he asked me again about it. (laughs) That poor doctor. I had so many questions to ask him. I always had so many questions to ask the doctors. They were the only ones who seemed to know anything, to be honest. Well, that was how I felt about it. There were too many nurses. I mean, there were some real good ones, but there was no one who was just regular who could watch Archer and really know. But there were only two regular pulmonologists, at least on his case. But because I never knew when the doctors would come or which of them would come, I kept a running list of my questions in the Walgreens notebook. I wanted to know, what do I look for? What do I watch for on a daily basis to mark progress? What can we shoot for? Why does Archer feel so much pressure? What needs to happen for Archer to get off the ventilator and the lung machines? One of the pulmonologists had told me a couple days ago that in order for Archer to get off a ventilator, you have to be able to cough. Well, Archer tried so hard to cough when I told him that, but he just gagged. But he wouldn't stop. He tried over and over. It was sort of pitiful, but he tried tirelessly. I loved it that he tried so hard. I loved him so much for trying like that. Yeah, 
Even a couple days before this, when Archer had a few sets of friends drive all the way from Baltimore to Atlantic City just to see him for a precious 10-minute visit, I had watched Archer strain mightily as he attempted to cough in their presence, almost like, look at me, I'll show you what I can do. Don't worry, boys, I'm not going to be on this ventilator much longer. At least, that is what it felt like to me, the look on his face. Or maybe it was a way to beg them to join him in the effort of being hopeful for something good in the future. I don't know. Maybe it was a little bit of both. As we all stood encircling Archer's bed and watching for what we had all been hoping and praying he would be able to do. But he could not. It was heartbreaking. I can only imagine what it was like for Archer. Failure? Archer has always performed for those he likes or cares about. This was it, you know, his peers. But there was nothing. Nothing. Nada. Zip. Zilch, Groucho, Harpo, Chico, nothing. All that effort and straining. It was painful to watch. I don't know how those boys felt about it. But I could see by the look on Archer's face that he was trying to keep smiling in an almost panicky sort of way, like the big pretend as the effort failed each time. I would exit the room after he had had about two or three attempts. I mean, yes, to give them a little privacy. But honestly, it was just too hard for me to watch. All that effort in vain. God, I don't know how he was doing it. You know that gagging? You might want to try it yourself. I mean, not the gagging, but, you know, just try what Archer was attempting. I actually did. I mean, try it. Cough. <coughs> Do it again. Notice how the muscles, maybe in your neck, cough again. <coughs> The muscles in your abdomen, they tighten. And your belly and your chest. Now imagine trying to cough, but your diaphragm and chest and abdomen don't move. Go ahead. Cough again while imagining that. It's actually hard. Your gag reflex will probably make you throw up. God forbid Archer throw up. If he did, we'd be in real bad shape because he has no ability to clear or even move his head to either side without seriously hurting himself, displacing the neck screws. At least that is how Dr. Radcliffe explained it. And then to not even be able to sigh 
or tell me if he were in distress? That's hard. Nothing. You know, it just occurred to me as I'm telling you this story why it was so necessary for Archer to be on a feeding tube. Because there were just trace amounts of calories he was given each day. He might not make it, literally, if he had any undigested food or anything come up as esophagus, regardless of the breathing tube in his mouth. He literally had no ability to clear his throat. I didn't want to take my eyes off of him. So I would watch Archer. I couldn't imagine. He was doggedly determined, and he would try again. It was ghastly how hard he was trying. I continued to cheer him on for the effort, but he could not will his body to move, his diaphragm to work as hard as he tried. Oh, he was struggling mightily. His will was so strong, but his body was, well, it wasn't even weak. It was strong too. That's what was so heartbreaking. It was just flat out inoperable. It lay there, floppy and heavy. But this morning, he seemed a little out of gas. It was like Archer's fierce little light was dimming. Don't give up, Arch, I told him. Rest, and you can try again, sweetheart. Your body just needs to heal. And it will in time. You'll walk again. You will. I said to myself, at least he wasn't in pain. And for that, I was so grateful. I knew he shouldn't be, according to Dr. Radcliffe, and that did comfort me. So much else the poor kid has to deal with, but not pain from the neck or surgery. I didn't understand actually how that was possible. But Dr. Radcliffe was a surgeon, and I kept thinking of what he had told Paula and Petey and me, and it did give me comfort. <sighs> Here is one personal note I found in my phone from this day. Well, today I am really mad at myself and at them for getting so effing distracted by their bullshit. I had that little whisper to be alert. So I was so focused on all their diagnoses and what they were telling me and trying to get meetings and work with a Dr. Tolucci. I missed what I should have been hyper alert for. They didn't know what they were doing. Here is what happened. Oh, my God, out of nowhere, I heard this ghastly. <sighs> and I looked at Archer. He had a wild look in his eyes and perspiration was starting to beat up on his forehead. But it was freezing cold in the room. Oh, my God, what was happening? 
I felt seized with fear as his face was contorted and his mouth was contorted in what looked like agonizing pain. I raced into the hall frantically. Excuse me, can someone help us, please? Room 3117, something's wrong with Archer. One of the nurses behind the monitor looked up and said someone would be right in. And I said, no, now. I raced back into Archer's room. It was awful. It scared me how he looked. I didn't understand. Are you in pain, Arch? Where? Where is it, honey? Where is it located? I got the ABC board. I ran through the lines. B. U. He spelled burn. It's burning pain? Just then, a nurse entered, and I told her as she began checking, Where's the burning pain, Archer? Where, honey? I'm so sorry. I began to point to parts of his body, shouting them out in hopes he could respond with blinks. Throat? Lungs? Arms? Neck? We learned it was all over. Where he had sensation. His neck, his head, his shoulders. Why? Dr. Radcliffe had said once he put in the titanium rods and plates into Archer's neck, that spinal cord injury neck surgery was not painful. He specifically said this surgery was not painful. And he said Archer would not be in pain. He'd be in mental pain, but not physical we just had to keep his neck steady. And we have, what was this? Archer was in pain, a lot of pain, searing pain. In that moment, I felt betrayed by Dr. Radcliffe. He was wrong. Doesn't anyone understand this? Can't anyone prepare us for what might happen? Oh, please, Lord, help us. Another nurse came in very quickly with another drip bag, and the two worked quickly together while Archer writhed and sweat. What are you giving him? I asked. She said, fentanyl. Fentanyl? He was already on all these other pain relief drugs for the chest tube lung stuff. At least that's what I thought. I just wanted them to do whatever to help Archer. It's going to be okay, Arch. They're going to help you, I said to him, trying to soothe him. They were trying to soothe him too. Archer, hang in there. We're giving you some morphine. I watched as they switched out a bag. There were so many bags and so many lines into his body. They work swiftly. Archer, this is going to pass, darling. It's going to get better soon. Think of, think of something else, sweetheart. Think of something pleasant. Let's think of the waves. Oh, God, I remember thinking maybe I shouldn't have said that. Arch, think of music. Hear, hear your favorite music. How quickly will it take 
I asked the nurses standing there watching to see the impact. Just a few minutes, one said, as I watched her bumping up the numbers on one of the digital monitors. We waited in silence until Archer began to get a little relief as she adjusted the control one more time. Why did this happen? I asked her. Why is he burning in pain? My mind was racing. Could it be that his body was trying to work? She said there could be many reasons when it's a spinal cord injury. I just wanted one. The drugs were powerful, and Archer's face relaxed, and then his eyes rolled into the back of his head. Oh, my God. She bumped the monitor button again and then quietly left the room. I wasn't sure those drugs were a good idea. Why did he need morphine? I wasn't sure what was worse. My child drugged up on narcotics for days on end or my loss of communication with Archer. And with it, my ability to know from him what was really bad. I was staring at both, and I didn't like it. I felt uneasy. And I didn't get why Archer was on narcotics at all. I mean, Archer's gagging? Yes, it was awful. And I know every time he strained was painful, but did that straining cause the searing, cause the burning? But wouldn't opiates slow down the very capacity Archer was trying to wake up? They said they would be back to dose him in four hours. Oh, dosing. That was a new term to me. I was learning. Many things. I was glad we had declared a day of no visitors. I was watching the time because I had to drive back to Cape May and trade places with the boys to watch Archer. Archer pretty much slept. I had to ponder things I had never thought about before as I studied him closely to understand this situation and to try to draw some inferences about spinal cord injury. You know, except for the pulmonologist I would hound, no one was there to explain any of this to me. There were times when I thought I was going crazy, because what I was getting from staff was conflicting. Or they'd say it wasn't their specialty, and I had to ask someone else. Or they just wouldn't say. But they wouldn't say they didn't know. That bugged me. It honestly would have been helpful if they had just said, we just don't know. Anything's possible. I can live easily with anything as possible but that's not what they said. And they definitely didn't say, we just don't know. 
What was starting to really bother me most, though, was how definitive they all were, as if they did know. But I could tell they didn't, because it was all conflicting. But it was like they were in their own lanes, like a racehorse with blinders and not necessarily collaborating with the jockeys on either side of them. As I look back, I think it was this day that brought my first real understanding or awakening to what a severed spinal cord, at least at C4, really means. It was hard for me to wrap my brain around it because... Archer looked so fit and healthy. I mean, his arms and hands actually looked healthy. They were limp and lying there, but they were still muscular and toned. They had good color, although his fingers were starting to curl. But his body... I guess it was like, I don't know, the main electric cord for his whole lower body had been like unplugged or short-circuited. And there was just no electrical output, no currency in his body below the neck and top of the chest to run all the good brand new parts. He was just 17. It's a hard concept, isn't it? I was trying to think of a good analogy to tell you. And all I could think of, oh gosh, um, I don't know. All I'm thinking about right now is like a smartphone. You know how you get a new smartphone and you transfer all your data to it and all your apps? It's new, and it has, obviously, all new parts. But it does run out of charge because you didn't get a charger cord. Yeah, a new, perfectly working smartphone, not able to operate because it has no juice. That's what it was like. Billy had returned after meeting the boys, getting lunch, and going over the situation, but I had to update them all on the recent scare. Archer was relatively comfortable by the time we both had left for our mediation with Rachel. All this tension and also gratitude that Archer was back in a place of comfort was in the backdrop of our mediation session, which I already told you about in episode 29. <laughs> it was so crazy how fast Billy and I had driven even after that emotionally draining mediation session in two cars, one behind the other, in tandem, up the highway, racing to get back to the hospital. We arrived around 9 p.m. Dewey and Pete had done a great job covering for us and reported that all was quiet on the hospital front. 
They said Archer was pretty out of it, though. They said he asked them to play his favorite playlist, Move Your Feet and Beat the Heat. They had put his headphones on him, but said he hadn't responded otherwise. They said he seemed a little uncomfortable, and the staff came in and gave him more medication. They had read to him two more chapters of the book Souchef, but he hadn't responded much to that either, except that when they stopped and asked him if he wanted more, he always gave some indication that he did. Thank you, Lord. He might be in la-la land, but still, there's a part of himself. The plan was that Billy would see Archer briefly and then drive back to Baltimore. He had a work mediation obligation the next morning. I was grateful there was one thing normal in our life and that he was making sure to service our mediation contracts. I honestly had not thought about work and prayed that my staff had told clients I wouldn't be available for a couple more weeks. As we traded places at the hospital with our older sons, Billy and I stayed together with Archer for a short while. Together. It was one of those rare times when we were together with Archer, just the two of us, and it felt different. We both watched Archer in silence. All the tubes, all those monitors, all those trip bags. I don't know what Billy was thinking. I don't even know what I was thinking. Sometimes I'm thinking nothing. We spoke minimally about Archer's needs and only as necessary with staff so he could continue to rest. You know what? Before Billy left Archer's room to head back, <laughs> he leaned over and kissed me. <laughs> I was surprised. And I just looked at him. Thank you, I said. It was the first time since Archer's accident that we had had a moment of intimacy. I don't know about you, but personal, physical touch, a kiss, can be so restorative. With just myself left in the room with Archer for the night, I turned out the lights that I could, and I continued to study Archer in the quiet. Well, you know what I mean. The ICU quiet, with all the buzzes and hums and beeps here and there. But I realized that they seemed to be receding into the background now. What didn't recede, though, were the sounds of Archer's labored breathing. 
one of the pulmonologists came into the room to speak with me. I was beginning to understand the consequences for Archer, for his lungs and his airways, if he didn't have an operable diaphragm. I never paid that much attention to all the organs of the body to understand how it's really the contractions of the diaphragm that allow us to breathe fully. We need the diaphragm, you know, to allow the lungs to expand. I was understanding Archer's labored breathing more. Archer opened his eyes and was awake for a while. I asked him if he still felt the pressure. He said yes. It had not gone away. He then asked when he would get off the ventilator. I told him one of the doctors had said 10 to 14 days at most, and we were just waiting on the lungs to drain. But I had to add, since I had promised to tell Archer everything I learned with the pulmonologist who had just been in the room, had just told me. I confess I hedged it a little because I didn't believe that doctor fully. He had said, you are probably looking at the long term. Oh, man. I told Archer, and one of these guys said it might be more long term, but Archer, I thought he was full of shit. Pardon my French. Archer turned away. <laughs> and I felt the tears burning in my eyes. But I couldn't let Archer lose hope. It wasn't fair to him. I closed my eyes for a deep belly breath to really focus on and feel my diaphragm rather than my breath. And I imagined that with my breath, my diaphragm merging with Archer's diaphragm to give him strength. I believe in visualization and manifestation when we cooperate. I do. I think it's part of creation, part of God's creation and wholeness. I wasn't sure what a diaphragm actually looked like, but I was imagining. I was learning so much about so many things I took for granted. Through osmosis or whatever it took, Archer Sempt was not going to be on a ventilator for the long term. I stayed throughout the night, alternating between trying to rest in the recliner chair near his bed, watching Archer closely and playing watchman of all those monitors that I honestly still did not fully understand. I texted my sister, Elizabeth Phipps Sanborn, that night. It was 10.50 p.m. 
I think I'm hitting a new rock bottom. Just spent an hour with doctor. Archer is likely to be needing a ventilator machine the rest of his life. I have no place to weep. The family lounge is always full of large Hispanic families with their sorrows too. Billy is driving back to Baltimore for mediation. We mediated for six hours today. It's hard. Please tell me it's going to be all right, even though I know it isn't now. The night passed. It was quiet. It was hard for me because I couldn't think of a way to explain what was happening to Archer's body versus what I was seeing, except for that smartphone example. It was hard to take in, really. I mean, why couldn't we just figure out how to get him back online and recharged, you know? And I thought about that searing pain he had this morning. There clearly was still energy in his body. I mean, where'd all that sweating and pain come from? He's very alive. The pulmonologist told me everything about him is in good condition, except for his lungs. No underlying issues, he said. Organs good. Lungs filled with garbage and a severed spinal cord. But he's not dead. The doctor was so kind. He let me tell him about Archer. I told him what a good athlete Archer was. <laughs> Great lungs, I said, and a heart and legs and arms. He said that will help him in his recovery. Oh, Lord, please help us. He has all these healthy parts. We just have to figure out how to get the diaphragm working again. There has to be a way he will walk again. At least he wasn't in pain anymore. The nurses were in and out of the room, changing bags and tubes as usual all night. More nurses, more changeovers. I thought about Archer having a good life. We just had to get through this period. We'd figure it out. I'm sure you've had hard times when you knew you'd make it. You just have to get through it, you know? I'm not sure what time it was, sometime in the early a.m. when I heard another little sound again from Archer. It was so faint. It was sort of a... And I bolted out of the recliner. It was still dark outside, and I got close to Archer and used the light on my phone to see his face. What is it, baby? I got the ABC board lying on his bed, and Archer reported he had a bad headache. A headache? Oh, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. Let me go get a nurse. I went out to the donut hole where the nurse's station was and asked if someone could come in our room when they got the chance. I asked Archer if a washcloth might help. We sat in silence. I wasn't sure what to do as we waited for someone to come. His face was showing signs of great pain. Archer, 
How much pain are you in, honey? A lot? A ton? Scale of one to ten. One, five, ten? Your head? He could barely communicate with me. I looked at the big clock over his bed. It had been 16 minutes and no one had come in yet. And then his teeth clamped down on the tube and his mouth hard. Oh, my God. I knew he was in excruciating pain. Archer, don't do that. I ran out. And this time I said, I need someone immediately. Room 3117 now. And just as I returned, a nurse came in and saw his distress and began checking his lines in the bags. She hit a button on the wall and called for another nurse. It was tense as I watched her working quickly, and I was telling Archer, hold on, Arch, hold on, and she yanked a tube out of the port in his arm. It was hastily done. She snapped to the other nurse, we need to change his medication. The other nurse raced out, re-entered, handed a bag to the one nurse, and the two of them quickly, expertly exchanged one bag for the other. The numbers, the lines, the squiggles on all the monitors were blinking and jumping, and Archer struggled to open his mouth. He was in such distress. And just then, the alarms went off. Our room, code blue. Oh, my God. What? I didn't anticipate that. Us? If the medical staff knew this could happen, no one forewarned us. The nurses didn't say anything. They didn't educate me. Oh, my God. I looked at Archer. And it was like a silent scream. It was so ghastly and so hideous. His mouth was gaping wide open. His eyes were hollow. He was like frozen. The agony was all over his face and the strain of his chest. Then his eyes closed and his head toppled forward over the neck brace. And then he began thrashing his head from side to side. Archer, I exclaimed, what is it? We will help you. He was fighting to open his eyelids. And when he did, his eyes were wild. He struggled, shaking his head recklessly back and forth. I scanned his body and the 12 monitors, plus the additional two new ones. One was flashing. I didn't know what to do. And then he just violently threw back his head. Oh, my God. Opened his mouth, the tape all over his face, and the tube ripped off. The breathing tube fell to the side. It was as if he was screaming so loudly. But there was no sound. I have never seen anything so gruesome in all my life. Oh, my God. Please help us. I have tried to erase that image from my mind over the years, but it's still there. When I see the screaming mouth and long white ghostly eyes, you know, hand up to its ears and one of those little emojis, it all comes rushing back. Two more nurses came rushing in and the alarms were blaring and sounding. One was carrying 
two more drip bags. Their hands worked quickly. The first nurse took a bag from one of the other nurses and hooked it up to the hanging line and reattached it to Archer. The other nurse switched out another bag. The third moved swiftly to replace Archer's breathing tube and the tape around his face holding the tube, checking the other drip bags and resetting monitors. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, Archer! Archer's strong teeth clamped down on the breathing tube back in his mouth again. Please, Archer, please don't do that. Please stop. <laughs> I could see that one of the nurses was on the computer checking the notes while the other was trying to calm Archer with bumps of the monitor. His eyes were crazy. He looked like he was going to explode. He wouldn't be able to breathe. His shoulders were agitating haphazardly left and right like a washing machine. He wouldn't stop. His floppy arms were flailing everywhere. It was gruesome. Help him, please. Please make this stop. Oh, dear Lord. Please help us. Please. One of the nurses ran back in and hung two other drip bags. Archer was in excruciating pain. It didn't let up. It was pounding pain. I could see it in his temples as they visibly throbbed. I also noticed his bad right ear from the cholesteatoma the titanium implants when he was a little boy. Oh my God, his ear was draining. This bloody mixture. I thought his head was exploding. I had never seen that before since he was a child. Oh my God. It was a radical change. Everything was changing. Archer was still biting down on the tube. No amount of morphine or any other narcotic was giving him any relief. It did not let up for almost three hours. Like he was being tortured. And I watched every minute of it. I got a wet washcloth and carefully and tightly rolled it up and placed it between Archer's teeth, between the breathing tube. I pleaded with him to bite that, giving him something else to bear down on to ease the intense pain. It was the only thing I could think of. The only thing I could think of to do, besides beseeching the Lord for relief. Please, calm Archer. Please, give him some relief. Please. The nurses stood silently in the room, watching the monitors. I said the rosary, and I called Billy. He barked over the phone, tell him to handle it. I knew he was scared. I said, they are, Billy. They are. You should come. He left Cape May immediately. I tried in vain to calm Archer. 
but over and over. He would open his eyes wide and his mouth, and oh my God, the tape would rip, and the washcloth would fall out, and he would be in that gruesome, ghastly, silent scream over and over. Why was this happening? What even happened? I didn't understand this intense, severe headache. And like his head was about to fall off. And there was so much pressure going on inside. I mean, it caused his ear to rupture. Oh, my God. When Billy arrived, he raced in. I could see he was so discombobulated. He began asking questions, too. The head nurse, someone we hadn't seen, that position changes too all the time, it seemed at least to us, came in and said they had to replace his medication. What happened? We both asked her. Will Archer be all right? She didn't stay long and just said that a bag had snuck in, but they had changed it out. Snuck in? What did she mean, snuck in? They bumped him too much on one of his medications? We didn't understand. Archer was still having bouts of the silent scream, and I wanted to scream. I was so confused, but we were both so focused on trying to stay calm for Archer's sake, to calm him. It wasn't easy. We were both so rattled. We couldn't let Archer see us rattled. Oh, Archer, my darling, what else does this spinal cord injury mean? What else is this crazy injury going to do to you, baby? You are strong, Archer. Archer had been through so much. I really wondered how he endured this day. When the severe throbbing finally began to ebb, we were so grateful. I can't say anything more than that. The relief. Archer's physical experience of calm again. I have no idea what it was like for him. And we still had no way to talk. Except through the ABC board. And it was not a time to talk then. But it was a time for gratitude. It was over. The breathing tubes, the feeding tube, the many lines in his body, the monitors, the turning of his body, the x-rays, the weight shifting of the bed the chest tubes, the collection containers, 
all of it still there. But this had passed. Archer, you are a champ. In our hearts, I think Billy and I both marveled at his suffering and his endurance. I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Raymond Tolucci five years later. I've introduced you to Dr. Tolucci before in episode 28. He was the chief of the trauma unit at Atlanta Care during the time Archer was there and for many years before. And up until the time we spoke, I was grateful for this rare opportunity for us to talk. I was also wondering if he remembered us. I mean, <laughs> it had been five years and the hospital had consented and all. But five years is a long time when you're seeing thousands of patients and families. But what I really wondered was what his experience with us had been like, if he did remember, and what it was like to be a trauma doctor. We traveled um, highs and lows in, in those days. And I, I'm just still, for today and for this podcast, I'm so moved by your text response um, that you sent to me. It was after I had texted you. And I'm so grateful for your response. I thought that I might just read that for context and uh, see where then you and I go with our conversation. I had texted Dr. Tolucci that we were from Baltimore and I had started a podcast about our experience with our son, Archer, with a message of hope, advocacy, and trauma healing, and that much of it was at Atlantic Care. And he was featured quite prominently in our stay there with the ups and the downs. And would he be interested in being interviewed? I had also said, I know you might not remember us. I reached out. I said, hello, Dr. Tolucci, Louise Fipsemt here. I don't know if you'll remember me, and I suspect not. But I am Archer Sem's mom, the 17. Oh, just seeing you. Whew. The 17-year-old boy who was flown to Atlantic Care August the 5th. 2015 from a diving accident in Cape May, rendering him a quadriplegic. He was close to death at Atlantic Care. You were chief of trauma then, and you were very kind to me. I don't know if you will recall, and you got back to me. Nice to hear from you. There are some cases that I will never forget. Archer is one of them. That still blows my mind today. And because he said yes to this conversation, I see so many possibilities for healing. Healing for me and my family with Atlanticare. I imagine Dr. Tolucci's willingness might open the doors for healing for other families too, to have conversations with doctors who caused their children harm or doctors like Dr. Tolucci who were in charge at the time 
when medical errors occurred. So where should, where should we begin? It's been five years and I was so moved uh, when you said there are some cases you will never forget and Archer is one of them. I was curious why he would never forget. I mean, you know, I always wondered that about trauma physicians. We had so many while we were there. Our lives were being defined by what happened in that trauma unit. Every moment was a defining moment. But, you know, I figured for the staff who take care of so many, we might have just been another patient, client, customer, victim, guest, whatever term they wanted to use. And I would understand that. I would. I just always wondered about that, you know? We had some pretty low times at Atlanticare. Um, and, and as a family, I imagine that we also may have frightened Atlanticare. You never forget patients that make an impression upon you. And it's so, it's a, I don't want to say it's deep. It's like a depersonalizing relationship when it's personal because you remove, because you have to remove, you do remove yourself. Yeah. You know, because you deliver such bad news. I mean, 14 year old girl brain dead is bad news. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Kid with a, who's quadriplegic is bad news. bad news. It's bad news. You know? Yeah. And if you're not moved by, by a 15-year-old who has a catastrophic accident that is going to change his life forever. You don't belong in medicine. Mm. Now, that's why you show up every day. I also wanted to ask Dr. Tolucci, whom I came to call Ray, since he and I ended up interfacing for a number of days after this scary incident, about his understanding of the patient experience. I wondered if he remembered how I was desperately searching for information, good, accurate information. And it seemed so hard to get that from the medical team. I mean, Archer's injury was complicated. And I think even complicated for the medical team. But back then, on day eight, I did not have an appreciation for that. We were on the moment-by-moment plan, and we were the patients. They were the experts. I mean, they didn't ask us for information. None, really. Any information they got from us was because we told them. So they placed us in the role of having to look to them as the experts. Maybe that's how they wanted it. And so we did. Is that so bad? I do think that's how they wanted it. But then, when they didn't have or were not willing to share the information we really needed, well, where were the experts? We needed information that would help us understand. We needed information that would help our family make sense of what was happening. We needed information that would help us look ahead. But it just wasn't there. I felt at times like we were a little paper boat 
bobbing on a big ocean, not knowing where we were going. We rode the waves and we bobbed through the low points. We went under, out of sight. And we were grateful after they had passed over us and we could pop back up again and bob right along. But today was serious. I mean, every day was serious. But today, as I look back, it's a fact that no one on the medical staff was willing to say or admit to us, or perhaps even to themselves, just how complicated Archer was for them. You know, I believe that if they had, it might not have been so complicated. I mean, had they just asked me and listened to me, his mother, or had they just asked Billy and listened to him as Archer's father, we could have told them things about Archer's blood pressure, which has always run a little low. So does mine. But they didn't. They could have educated me about what certain drugs were and what they did. I could have helped them by asking them about drugs, which ones, and I could have helped know the difference. They were changing his drip bags frequently. I learned the drugs were in the drip bags, but I had no idea what different drugs did. None. I did ask. And when I asked, they would show me a bag with a name on it at best, but not explain what it was for, just that it was in the doctor's orders, the nurses would say. Or a number of nurses told me I could make a request to look in the doctor's orders. It made me mad. I just needed someone to tell me what these drugs did. There was no reason for Archer to have suffered so intensely for two to three hours. That's a long time. I just think if they had paused to include us, explain to us, and at the very least, show us what they were giving Archer, maybe the major headache scare could have been avoided. I don't know. But I felt very strongly that it could have been. We were all exhausted. And I was just grateful to have Archer back. I couldn't get it out of my mind, though, that all they said was that they needed to change his medication. <laughs> Talk about a medical euphemism. <sighs> but I wasn't even mad. I was just relieved. And when they came in and scanned the note in the drip bags and barked an order for some other medication and quickly switched out that bag that brought Archer's blood pressure back down, yeah, I was grateful. 
I don't know anything about these drugs. But oh, poor Archer. He truly suffered. It was crazy for me because I had conflicting emotions. And I did think it must be hard to be a trauma nurse. And then I was angry, you know, with all the lack of information. But I just wanted our son to heal so we could all go home. You know, would you see us again in a different forum because of accidents and things that happened? And I began to realize these people are under so much pressure. I mean, the staff, uh, I mean, we were as a family. And I think that's when I became hyper vigilant, watching every monitor, asking, you know, questions that I would really encourage any family to ask in almost in like a partnership with every nurse that came in to see like, what is that now going in that drip bag? And what is it not as an adversary, but we need every, we need more eyeballs on one person who's very complicated than just one set. We need, we need multiple sets. And, um, and it needs to be coordinated, you know, and it, it needs to be not so much, like you said, silo, but it needs to be, um, I don't know, managed. Yes. Kind of. And I think the management role is the role of the trauma team, so to speak, the, the attending team of putting information together and giving you something that you can hang your hat on. I love that about my interview with Dr. Tolucci, because I began to feel that he did understand how vital it was that a family be given good, solid, accurate information. Even if that information was that the attending staff were not sure, but had a plan for that too. Like, consult other people. Coordinating with others was beginning to enter my mind on day eight but it was just a nascent thought as we were so reliant on the Atlantic Care medical staff. They were the doctors, they were the experts. And I believe that. And today, five years later, I still believe that. But I also know that they only had part of the picture. And that the current way medical care is practiced, they might not ever get some of the most important parts of the picture because they don't see the family as being integral to the care team. They think they have all the medical answers. Well, they don't. But the thing is, they don't have to. They could work with the family to form the right medical answers. And some of those answers might be outside the hospital. Poor judgment and mistakes are one thing, and they need to be addressed. A practice, though, that doesn't get or give the right information, to me, that's an even bigger matter that we should address. You know, as opposed to looking at that squiggly lines on the monitor, and yeah, after about you know, you know more about EKGs now after about 12 hours than I will ever know 
in my entire career just because you stared at that thing for hours. Yes, right. And you so, were so focused on it. I was, yes. Yeah, but 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 you have and and frequently would say, you know, at least you have to step back. This, there's a bigger picture here. You cannot focus on the little squiggly lines, you know, that's something that we do on a daily basis. You have to sometimes step back. I was appreciative of Dr. Tolucci's view. And like I said, so grateful for his interview. But I do have another view that I would ask medical staff to consider. And it is this, a medical team, family partnership. We'll just call it team stay alert. The way I feel about it, had I or another member of our family not been bedside to Archer, he might have died. His head was about to explode. He felt it coming, but had no way to complain to staff that he had this headache and that it was getting massive quickly. The hospital hadn't made it possible for Archer to communicate with them. Somebody had to be there. The monitors were not sounding any alarms. He had no arms to hit a button or a control call. I think about that to this day. It was grace that allowed us to get those nurses in there well before the alarms went off, giving them time to figure it out and change the medication. It caused harm. But a minute or two or three later, when the alarm actually sounded, may have been too late. I don't want to even think about that. But it did not occur to me until much later that Archer literally had no way of summoning help in the usual ways in hospitals and ICUs. And I don't think ICUs think about that for spinal cord injured people. This may be unique to spinal cord injuries, but maybe not. And for Archer, he also had no voice to yell out. He had tubes all over him and down his throat. And he had been put in la-la land because of whatever drugs they gave him and he barely had any ability to blink his eyes in a meaningful way. And I suspect that is not unique to him, but that many other patients in a trauma unit, young and old alike, have experienced some, if not all, of these same barriers. Families are needed bedside. We are fighting for the lives of our loved ones to give them love and support but we are needed. So there is another constant set of eyes on the person in the hospital bed. We need to be part of and thought of as part of the team of folks, team stay alert. The machines do incredible things, yes, and someone monitoring them for abnormal changes out in the donut hole in the nurse's station out there, yeah, that's super important. But why didn't someone rush in to monitor Archer when Archer had a severe headache? Why didn't someone rush in when Archer had severe throbbing in his temples with a radical change? 
the machines weren't showing enough? They weren't watching enough? There's no replacement for someone watching bedside. None. I know that Dr. Tolucci and his staff thought that after sitting bedside 24-7 for a full week plus, that I should go home. But I wasn't going. I couldn't. And this day affirmed that. I had felt I had to be on alert for Archer. And I wanted to be for our son. I imagine you would want to, too. And if you've been in an ICU, I bet you have. And if you haven't, I hope you will. Every person in a trauma ICU needs someone bedside 24-7 to stay alert on their behalf. You have to sometimes step back and... and, and and even, even from a standpoint of uh, our families in particular, and, and I, I think this is where I, this is the part after 35, 40 years of the excitement of doing crazy and strange things and wonderful things and saving patients' life. I think that, that, that as a traumatologist, you begin to focus on, again, the larger picture and what you're going through, what your husband's going through. And then what, what about the kids at home, the other four that are at home, that nobody's there for. Right. I remember I kept saying to you, Ray, I'm the mother of five children. You know, and, and that's another place where we really connect because you have a number of children. I so appreciated his big picture view and his empathy for my torn in two directions situation. I love that about Ray Tolucci because I felt that the chief and I had an understanding of who we were fundamentally as people. And I'm really grateful that he's agreed to more interviews as we go along. I realize I almost demanded that relationship as he was the one I sought out for answers once I learned he was the chief. And I'm deeply grateful for that relationship. But at the end of the day in Atlantic Care Hospital, I was not going home. One of our children was in a crisis. I was Archer Semp's mother above all else. And he was the chief of the trauma unit. There was a bigger picture and I was acutely aware of it. And my focus was on what was right in front of me to keep our bigger picture in clear view. I will end on that. Oh, Lord, as we close, please whisper to us in our pain and in our fearful frenziness, reminding us there is something bigger and greater. Always. It's your love. Give each of us the wisdom to have good judgment not to harm others in our thoughts and our actions. To pause and be discerning 
when we might have the thought. And when we hurt each other, <laughs> give us the courage to be strong enough to be vulnerable and to say, I'm sorry. Or at least, I didn't know. I wish it hadn't happened. Thank you for your whisper that keeps us feeling your peace and feeling safe and on alert. Help us see what we need to see. Help us heed what it is that we should stay alert to. Danger, yes, and beauty and opportunity for moments where we can forgive each other and begin again. Stay with us, oh beloved. Help us to stay with you and feel the warmth of your divine love living inside of us, even in the midst of chaos and pain. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. You may continue listening to the learnings that go with this story at Trauma Healing Learning. Stay alert. Thank you for listening. As together, we are raising the vibration for healing. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face -face dialogue as they work through difficult, emotional, and complicated family, divorce, and family business situations. Baltimore Mediation is the preeminent training firm training leaders worldwide in basic and advanced conflict transformation and mediation skills, relational negotiation, and the Enneagram of personality customized for their workplace. Public certificated trainings are held annually in June, October, December, and January. You can learn more at BaltimoreMediation.com. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. 